For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we ask you as we do week by week to join us here in this place this morning. And we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. I wonder if you're having the same thought now that I sometimes have when I read whatever the scripture is that is assigned for the week. I'll sometimes read something and think to myself, oh man, is there anything to say about this passage that hasn't been said a hundred times Already, what new spin can I possibly put on this? And of course, the the congregational version of that thought is to start mentally constructing the sermon in your head, even as we're reading the piece of scripture. Oh, I bet I know what he's going to say about this one. And you guys are like, oh, I wonder what movie reference he'll use. (laughs) And if you've been in the same church long enough, especially a liturgical church like this one, With the same preacher, you might wonder if you're going to hear exactly the same thing that you heard the last time this scripture was read in church. Is he just going to recycle the same sermon? Will he accidentally refer to a movie that he, quote, just saw in the theater that actually came out three years ago or six years ago or nine? I'll tell you, this is a concern for me. I always want my message to be compelling and fresh, and I sometimes wonder... If there's going to be a time in the future, and don't tell me if you happen to think that this time has come and gone long ago, I wonder if there's going to be a time in the future when the originality well runs dry. But it's just when I start feeling that way that I bring my mind back, try to remind myself of Catherine Hankey's Simple yet incredibly profound hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Here's what she writes. This is incredible to read again. Uh, She writes, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply, as to a little child, for I am weak and weary helpless and defiled. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And if that wasn't profound enough, she's not done. That's just the first verse. Listen to the second verse. I promise I'm not going to read you the whole hymn. Just the second verse. She says, tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often. For I forget so soon, the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Now, by the way, and for the record, this hymn expresses perfectly why we do what we do week by week. Why we follow a liturgy that involves confessing the holiness of God, receiving his absolution, and celebrating the source of that absolution, Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us every single week. 
This is why we preach the finished work of Christ every single week. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. We forget by noon the good news that we hear in the morning. Martin Luther said that he proclaimed the gospel, the good news, every week because his people and he himself forgot it every single week. So we don't look for new stories to tell. We tell and retell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I was especially grateful for Hanke's hymn when... A few years ago, and after several thousand readings of the parable of the prodigal son, I actually felt like I had found something new, and it was something that I didn't like. You know the story very well, probably. A man has two sons, and the younger of them goes to his father and demands his inheritance early. And he's, in effect, telling his dad, if you're not going to hurry up and die... At least act like you're dead and give me my money. And the father agrees to give his son his share of the inheritance. And the young man goes off to a distant country and squanders his property in dissolute living. Which is a phrase that I just love. Um, Every time my father asks me on the phone how I'm doing, I say, well, the usual dissolute living. (laughs) It makes... What was probably a life of disgusting debauchery sound almost romantic, dissolute living. But anyway, the son comes to his senses one day and realizes how low he has fallen. He's had to hire himself out to a citizen of this far country as the guy who feeds the pigs. And he finds that he's so hungry, so broken down, so in need... His living has been so dissolute that he would gladly eat the pig's food for himself. And then he remembers how well his father's servants live in his father's house. They're well cared for, well fed, they're warm and safe. And so he decides to go home. He prepares his I'm sorry speech as Sally Lloyd-Jones refers to it, and heads off toward home. But before he can even get close enough to start the speech, while he's still far off, his father comes running toward him, welcoming him back joyfully into the family, not as a servant, but as a full son. This son of mine, says the father, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Isn't that a wonderful image? A father who must have been waiting on the front porch day after day, week after week, scanning the horizon for any hint of his son returning to him. He's desperately waiting. So primed is he to welcome his son back that he sees him while he's still far off. Uh, Tim Keller adds the stirring image of the father who would have been wearing a long robe like, grabbing it up and hiking it up so that he can run from the house to greet his son. When your father is a forgiving God, you can always go home again. 
do you know what? That's not good enough for me. And if you've been listening to me for long enough, your ears might be starting to prick up at this point too. Wait a minute. If I'm the prodigal son and God is the father, what does the parable of the prodigal son say about God? Well, he's pretty darn passive, isn't he? We talk all the time about the one-way nature of the love of God, that God loves unconditionally, without expectation. We talk about the power of the incarnation, right? Jesus coming to earth to be one of us. Jesus became a human being, crossing the chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. This is a God who does not wait for sinners to come to him, but in fact goes to sinners. This is not a God who waits on the porch. So what's going on here? Well, this was the new thing that I discovered. That in the parable of the prodigal son, God's waiting on the porch. And this distracted me for a few frantic moments from the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Because the father of the prodigal son waits for the son to come to his senses. Sure, he's ready. He's waiting. He welcomes him home, but not until the son starts walking back. This is classic God will go 99 yards if you just go one sort of stuff. And it's not good enough news. It's conditional love. I'll always welcome you back as long as you acknowledge your mistakes. And come home. And that's not good enough for me. And thankfully, that's not actually the story that Jesus is telling. Now, if you look in your leaflet, you'll see that the assigned reading from this week is from Luke 15. But then you'll see something strange. We read verses 1 through 3, but then skip some verses and start again at verse 11b. We don't have all of what Jesus says in our reading. And yes, the parable of the prodigal son is by far the most famous story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, but it's not the only one. It's the third of a set of three stories. And the stories that we skipped, I guess for length of reading, are critical for understanding the breadth and the depth of what Jesus is communicating in this chapter. A chapter in which he is telling the story of his love. It's not an old, old story yet as Jesus tells it, but it is definitely good news. Listen, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, And losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need No repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search 
carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. So before telling a story that involves a son making a decision to return home from a far country, Jesus has told two other stories, one involving a coin lost in a dark corner of a house, and one involving a sheep that is actively wandering astray. In both of those cases, a shepherd seeking a lost sheep and a woman seeking a lost coin, we have a clear illustration of the one-way active love of God, the activity of God in seeking out sinners. We see the woman searching carefully in every corner of her house until she finds her coin. She will not be stopped. We see the shepherd leaving 99 sheep who don't need to be found in order to go out and search until he finds the one that is lost. Those points, by the time Jesus launches into a tale about a son demanding his inheritance and squandering it on dissolute living, those points have already been made. God did not send me for the 99 righteous, Jesus might as well be saying. He sent me to seek and save the lost. I will seek out, no matter what dusty, dark corners I have to look in, those sinful people to whom I have been sent. And now, with the story of the prodigal son, I will assure you that there is no land that is too far away, no living too dissolute, that we won't have an absolutely killer party when I bring you home. On its own, it's too easy to see the prodigal son as a simple story about a change of heart and a welcome home. And the moral... You don't have to stay away. Come back. You're always welcome home. God is waiting. That's sort of good. But that's not good enough. If you're feeling far from God, and you read the prodigal son story, you might think, I have to pick myself up from the trough and go back home. It's up to me to get back to God or to stay close to Him in the first place. But the good news, capital G, capital N, is better than that. And you know the news is good news if it's even better than the prodigal son. God will stop at nothing to find you. Like that wandering sheep and that lost coin. It's God's job, accomplished in Jesus Christ, to get and stay close to you. And your redemption, also accomplished in Christ, is the occasion for a huge heavenly party. So, as we go about our lives, often feeling far from God, let us remember that God promises us these things. That he will leave those who don't need saving. And that's just a rhetorical device, by the way. Everyone needs saving. But he came for the lost. So when you feel lost, he came for you. He will search and search and never stop until you are found. There is nowhere he won't go 
Nowhere you can be that is too far. These are his promises. And God always keeps his promise. The old, old story is still true. And it's true today for you. So we'll tell the story slowly. So we may take it in. That wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. We'll tell the story often. For we forget so soon. The early dew of morning will be refreshed at noon. We'll tell it every day. That old, old story of Jesus and his love. Amen.